In Nuremberg, an executioner called Meister Franz Schmidt kept a personal journal of all the executions and criminal punishments that he had administered through his 45-year career, from his first execution when he was 19 in 1573 to his retirement in 1618. By his own estimate, he personally killed 394 people and flogged or disfigured hundreds more. Now, while historians had known of the journal, until Professor Joel Harrington came across it, no one had thought to use it to investigate the mind of the executioner, to reconstruct his life, or to see what the journal could tell us about the world in which he lived. Joel Harrington is Centennial Professor of History at Vanderbilt University. His distinguished academic career has focused on the history of the Reformation and early modern Germany, writing, among other things, about marriage and the fate of foundlings and orphans. In 2013, he published his critically acclaimed book on Meister Franz Schmidt, The Faithful Executioner, Life and Death, Honour and Shame in the Turbulent 16th Century. It was translated into 13 languages and named one of the best books of the year by the Daily Telegraph and History Today, and quite rightly, because it's a wonderful book. And I'm delighted that its author joins me now to explore Franz Schmidt's life and the role of the executioner in early modern society more generally. So, Joe, in the 16th and 17th centuries, punishment, as we know, is always corporal and often capital. It's basically state-sponsored violence. And so historians have talked about, you know, the theatre of horror and the spectacle of suffering. What was the point and the purpose of it? Why was it so visibly brutal? Well, I think it has to do with a gap between the official expectations or aspirations for cracking down on crime and their actual capabilities. In other words, in the 16th century, 17th century, a lot of governmental authorities wanted to do more about crime, but they really had pretty pathetic forensic and investigatory abilities, and most criminals got away. So I think this is their compensation, is when they actually catch people, they want to, number one, say, look, we caught somebody, and secondly, make an example to other people, whether it's a public flogging or these various gruesome rituals. So I think it's a way of asserting governmental authority and saying we actually are doing something and trying to make people feel better about that. And why did they not incarcerate people? I mean, apart from the insane and the poor. Yeah, it's a great question. And I teach a course on this early modern crime and punishment. And we start out in the 15th century at the end of the Middle Ages and we go up to the end of the 18th century. And as you say, there is prisons or jails or towers or whatever are generally used as holding places. They generally places you keep people until you go on trial or are punished. And for them, locking somebody up in a small room for a long time would be cruel and unusual. There are delays. I don't want to say that they always have swift justice. And there are exceptions. There are some people, as you know, especially in England, who are locked up for quite a long period of time. But they don't really think of prison as a punishment. And I think it's partly, too, because they don't have the goal of rehabilitation. They're just responding to a crime and trying to punish somebody and prevent further violence. So prison does not serve that function. And the closest thing they have is something called transportation or banishment. They just send people outside of their jurisdiction or they deport them to a foreign colony. But they would never think of locking somebody up. That's just not in their mentality. 
Hmm. So if we're thinking about the early modern period, they are interested in protecting society from criminals. They do that by killing them rather than imprisoning them. And they're trying to deter others. And I guess they're trying to achieve some sort of redress for the crime. But they're clearly not trying to rehabilitate them, especially if they're dying. But I suppose, is there any sort of sense that they're trying to create some sort of restitution, that they're trying to harmonise social relations, that there's any positive outcome of punishment? Yes, absolutely. But I would put it in a religious context. In other words, when somebody is executed, it has several goals. And I mentioned the goal of setting an example and scaring people. But it's also, as you said, it's to try to heal the society. Is to say, this is for the victims, this is for the family of the victims. We are resolving this. And then there's the religious dimension for the offender, that if that person repents and confesses, they could still be saved. You know, it could be a religious act of redemption. So in the end, you have a gruesome punishment, but potentially it makes people feel better. Collectively, as a society, oh, look, we punished this terrific crime. And individually, this person has confessed and said to the crowd, don't do what I did, and maybe been reconciled with God. So that's a way of turning this really awful thing into something that is potentially a feel-good moment. It's amazing to think of somebody's public execution as a feel-good moment. But let's think yeah. Yeah. think about the executioner in all this, actually, because it forces us to raise a series of questions. And I suppose we ought to start by thinking about the role of the executioner in the society, because they were bound up with ideas about honour. Could you explain this to me? Yes. As you say, pre-modern society in Europe, very concerned about honour, personal reputation, Again, when I teach this, I say it's not as different as we make it out to be. You know, if we say honor, that sounds very old-fashioned. But if we said respect, everybody today wants to be respected, and they react badly when they're disrespected. I think the difference is, you know, if somebody walked up to you in a bar and insulted you, you're not going to pull out your dagger and stab that person to death. Whereas this is a society where reputation is so fragile, both for men and women, that if for men, if somebody insults their masculinity or their manhood, they feel they have to defend it or else they've lost everything. And for women, it tends to be sexual reputation. You know, if you call a woman a whore, that's like one of the worst things you can say next to calling her a witch. So people are, I think, are always somewhat on edge that they're looking to be attacked in terms of reputation. And for them, a verbal attack is as dangerous as a physical attack. And I think that's the biggest change. So where does the executioner come into these ideas about honour? Well, the executioner is part of the society, and so it's something everybody imbibes early on. And the other thing is an executioner is considered dishonourable, so he's very aware of the stigma of not having honour. And there are legal prohibitions that he can't pass on property, his sons can't go into trade, some places they're not allowed to go to church... But there's also the social stigma that people will shun them and avoid them. So he's very aware. The man I write about, Franz Schmidt, is very aware of the negative side of honor. And that's the story that I attach to in my book, is he comes into the world in a position of dishonor and spends his whole life trying to reverse that. That's the narrative arc of the book. Would you think it's fair to make a comparison between executioners and something like the Dalit or the untouchable castes in India? 
because they're doing things that are similar actually dealing with tanning and all sorts of things that we might not expect execution to be doing they're actually dealing with animal carcasses and so on is that a fair comparison yeah i think so there are lots of people in early modern society that are considered dishonorable so obviously people who work with dead bodies grave diggers butchers latrine cleaners there's a canadian who wrote an article about the book and said all these people who do these dirty jobs for us that need to be done and he compared it to sanitation workers you know, I don't think they're untouchables, obviously. But the idea being that there are people who are necessary to society to do all these things, but the rest of society treats them with contempt. And uh, certainly executioners, you know, this is a society where most people cannot imagine not having executions. So you need executioners and you need good ones, but also in the sense that it can be passed on. So he gets the dishonor because his father was an executioner, and he is trying to prevent it from being passed on to his children. People in this society almost treat it like it's a contagion, like you don't want to be touched. But one of the big ironies is many of these executioners work as healers. So on the one hand, people don't want to be touched by them in the street, but then they'll go to see them if they have some kind of physical problem. That is an interesting paradox, yes. Because prostitutes might be punished by dancing with the executioner in the town square, and yeah, some yeah. forms of execution are more dishonorable than others, aren't they? Because of their contact with the executioner. And I find that fascinating. Yeah, it's a question of degrees. Some things are more and some things are less, yeah. So give us an example of something that would be more and something that would be less. So the more dishonorable execution, one would be broken by the wheel. And this is where you stake somebody out on the ground and they put little slats of wood under them. And this is for people who are murderers, especially multiple murders, like highwaymen, and they have serial murders. They're psychopathic. And the executioner takes a large wagon wheel, or some places an iron bar, and then systematically breaks every bone in their body. And the other thing is the body is left out there. And that's the really shameful part. I mean, it's pretty shameful, the first part. And so hanging is another one where theft, for instance, is punished by hanging. And that's considered very dishonorable. And also because it takes a while. You know, we think of hanging with the drop, you know, where the trap door drops and somebody's neck snaps. But that's not invented until the late 18th century. In this period, when they're hanged, they climb up on a ladder with the executioner who pushes them off. And then they just choke to death for 15, 20 minutes. And then the body is left hanging there. So that's the really dishonorable part is you go by gallows in the 16th century and there are dead bodies there. And the animals are eating them, and it's terrible. The treatment of the dead body is very important to them. That's especially shameful. Whereas the favored form of execution is beheading. And that goes back to Roman times, that Roman citizens could claim that. St. Paul could claim that because he was a Roman citizen. And it's quick. You know, your head is chopped off with a sword. And it's considered an honorable way to go. So aristocrats can claim that kind of execution and obviously the kings and queens that you write about this is something that they do so one last question before we get on to your man franz schmidt some historians describe this as the golden age of the executioner and it's a really curious phrase what do they mean by that well there are heightened aspirations in the 16th century and 17th century because you have political rulers with much greater territorial ambitions, conquering territories and so on. And that costs lots of money to pay for troops. And so their trade-off is to say, we will keep you safe, my people. We will deliver you from crime. But again, that's really hard to do. 
So they tend to turn toward execution because it's something that is very visible, it's very public, and it's this carefully choreographed ritual where the person is supposed to have a good death. And so you need a really well-trained professional who is reliable and who can carry this out. And the Golden Age is really because executioners for the Middle Ages were really borderline criminals themselves and shady characters, and they had a reputation for being corrupt and drunks. And so with these new expectations in the 16th century, somebody like Franz Schmidt is the ideal candidate because he doesn't drink, he's scrupulously honest, he's very pious, and he's incredibly effective and reliable as an executioner. So he gets paid a lot of money. So it's a golden age in the sense that they're still stigmatized, but they're very well compensated because there's such a demand for executions, not just in general, but executions that are carried out really well. He's probably the best paid executioner in Germany in the 16th century. I mean, he makes a lot of money and he's probably paid as much as a very wealthy lawyer or somebody like that. Wow, that's extraordinary. I had no idea. I mean, I knew they were professional executioners in this time, but that they were so wealthy is amazing. So tell us, what do we know of Meister Franz Schmidt? And also, please tell us the story of how you found him. So the way I came across him was a previous book. I was working in Nuremberg and writing about abandoned children. And so I used a lot of criminal records. And I had heard of this executioner. He was famous because he was in Nuremberg for 45 years, and he also had left behind this journal. There had been some published German versions and had gone out of print. And I was at a bookstore and I ran across one of them. And I said, oh, this is great. So I bought it and took it home. And I said, oh, this is such a great source. And, you know, for us historians, finding a great source is 50% or more of it. And the other thing that I found, though, that made my book possible was later in life, he was appealing to the emperor to have his honor officially restored. And he wrote out this very detailed petition describing his family history and so on. And I found that, and with the help of another historian, Kathy Stewart, who's written a great book on executioners, I read this, and that's where I was able to put together the journal which describes his executions and his life story, which is in the petition. And that's where I got the whole sense of a narrative that he had spent his entire life trying to reverse this terrible dishonor that he was born with. So that's the genesis of the book. And I did not have the second document when I started writing it. So that obviously changed a lot of things once I found that. Oh, that's really interesting. So you must have started on a completely different sort of book. Yeah, and I think it was probably more of an academic book. Let's talk about themes. And I had talked to some friends who were non-academic writers, and they were all very adamant that I should do more of a narrative. And then I decided, well, I can do both. I can do a story of his life and different stages, but then I can each chapter talk about different themes. I can talk about violence, or I can talk about honor. And so that was another insight for me once I figured that out. And I got to have it both ways. I got to talk about the themes and tell his story. But yeah, you're right. I do wonder what the book would have been like if I hadn't found that petition. I would actually say it's probably a better source than the journal because it tells about his father, his grandfather, his life, and it talks about his work as a healer which is not in the journal at all. You would never know that he works as a kind of physician and it's in the petition. 
Okay, well, we'll definitely come back to that. So fill us in a little bit then about Schmidt. He's born 1554. Right. And what do we know of his story after that? So uh, I talk about in the book how his father gets forced into the position of being an executioner. It's not anything most people would choose. And as I said, these things are passed down. So once he becomes an executioner, his son has to be one, or I guess go off and be a soldier. He comes from Hof, which is a German city. It's up in the very corner of Bavaria today. And his father gets a job in Bamberg, which is to the southwest of that. And he works as the official executioner for the Bishop of Bamberg. And so Franz goes there as a teenager. And then through a variety of connections and wily maneuvers on his father's part and his in-laws, Franz gets a job in Nuremberg as executioner. And he actually replaces his brother-in-law, who was ailing. And he is 24 when he's appointed as full-time executioner in Nuremberg. And he's already been doing some executions for his father, sort of freelancing and getting experience. And then he is there until retirement 40 years later. So 1618. And he works until he's 64 years old. And he becomes a citizen. He has a family. He has several children. He has a big house, which is still there. You can visit it. They've turned it into a museum. And he achieves some of his goals and not some of his goals. It seems amazing that we have two sources from this man. This feels like it would be quite rare. Were most executioners that literate? No. So when you talk about sources like this, we always have to be careful of what some people say, is is this typical? Is this usual? I don't think anybody's typical. What you can say is some things are more common with other people of a certain type and some things are not. There are some other executioners who make lists of the people they execute, but not as extensive as Schmidt. And the petition for a historian, you know, it's the mother load. You get two great sources. And so I try to do the best I could with them. But, you know, I was drawn to this, not because I'm drawn to violence. I'm really not but because this is somebody I would think I have very little in common with. And so trying to understand our common humanity. Actually, yes, there are some obvious differences, but there's also some connections. And I think this is one of the things we do as historians. We try to find the balance between differences and commonalities. And I think we are all connected in some very basic ways and probably more ways than we admit. And that the differences They're there, and they're important, but they're not at all the whole story. So yeah, I was trying to say 16th century executioner. That sounds pretty different from a 21st century history professor, but actually I found some connections, I think, and hopefully the readers do too. I think that the fact that you don't like violence actually was very important to the writing of this book, because if you had been somebody who had gloried in the sensational nature of violence then I think actually it would have been almost unreadable because as we'll see, (laughs) there's some gory stuff coming up. And actually you need to have that kind of restrained approach to engage with it and to think about those bigger questions. But before we move on from Schmidt and go into that in detail, I wanted to draw attention to the fact that actually you've got a picture of him. This seems to me extraordinary as well. So there's a picture just inside the book which shows his portrayal in a chronicle and he's got brown curly hair and a beard and he's wearing a striking combination of a high-necked white shirt collar and a leather jerkin over a blue doublet and light blue hose 
and an elaborate codpiece. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and over his right shoulder, he is carrying an enormous broadsword, it looks like to me, which he is preparing to swing at the neck of a seated and bare-necked woman. It's amazing that you can also see this person. Yeah, well, the image is very different from what a lot of people think of. They think of the stereotype of a hooded executioner and, you know, kind of a burly guy and a thug. And a lot of these guys, they were clothes horses because it's a big public spectacle. All the eyes are on you. And so there are other color versions of Franz at work. And he wears all kinds of bright colored clothes. You know, not at all this image that modern movies have. A lot of our ideas about executioners and frankly about this period in general come from the 19th century. It's people in the 19th century imagining this gothic world and all these crazy things and they have very little to do with reality and so people like you and I have to go back and say well what was it really like and it's not like the 19th century version. So yeah I was happy to see these pictures that you can actually see. This is very different than what we expected. Well that's also fascinating. In a moment, I want to talk to you a bit more about what Franz Schmidt actually had to do as an executioner. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on The Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. This is not just the Tudors with me, Susanna Lipscomb, and I'm talking to Professor Joel Harrington about the executioner, particularly an executioner called Franz Schmidt. So we ought to talk about what it is he actually did. What sort of executions did he have to master? You've told us about executing with the wheel, which sounds pretty horrid. Was there a full range beyond that, as well as hanging? Yeah, so his job involves actually two different things. And one is interrogation, which sometimes is with torture. And then the other, as you say, is punishment, which can range from a corporal punishment like public flogging. And this would be, let's say, for prostitutes. They would pull down their skirt or their dress, and he would 
flog them on their back and walk them out of town. So that's a public ritual and other sorts of corporal punishment. Some of them quite gory, like he cuts off somebody's tongue for blasphemy. Very rare. That doesn't happen very often. In terms of executions, by far the most common form of execution is hanging. And that's also because I mentioned the increase of executions in the 16th and early 17th century. A lot of it has to do with theft, that they're executing a lot of thieves. I described execution with the wheel, which is not common, but he probably does, I think, maybe 20 of those during his long career. And that's really a lot of work for the executioner. Yeah, you'd have to be pretty strong to wield that wheel. Yeah, I mean, most of us would have a hard time picking it up in the first place. And then doing that several times over the course of up to an hour, it's quite an ordeal for the executioner as well. The punishments depend on the crime. So as I said, hanging is for theft. The wheel is for aggravated murder. Burning at the stake, everybody knows that for witchcraft or for blasphemy. What they don't probably know is that in most cases, a person was discreetly strangled and then they're burned. So there are some people who are burned alive. And it's, as you would imagine, it's a terrible thing. And people are screaming and people talk about smelling the burnt flesh. I think he only does a few of those. Also for homosexuality, which is a capital crime. But I think he only has two executions for that. And one of them, the person is strangled first. And the other one, the person is burnt alive for sodomy. So it's obviously pretty awful. He does not execute anybody for witchcraft, but again, we all know about the burning at the stake for witches. There used to be drowning of women. Drowning was considered a reform, an improvement from the previous punishment for women, which was burial alive. You know, that's pretty awful. And so they thought, instead of doing that in the 16th century, let's drown them. Yes, we'll come up with something much more humane. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a great step forward. And you know, obviously it's a terrible and cruel thing, but it's also very messy because people struggle, it's prolonged. And the one thing that legal authorities don't want is they don't want the crowd to have sympathy for the executed person. They want them to say, this person is getting what she deserves or right. what he deserves. And when you see people struggling like that, you start to say, oh, help her or do something. And so Franz Schmidt actually petitions his employers to change the punishment for women from drowning to beheading. And I know that in England they hang women, especially witches. They won't do that in Germany. And the reason, you might find this humorous, they don't want people looking up women's skirts. So I was going to say, is it upskirting? Yeah, yeah that's it. So yeah. when they're just hanging there, they don't want yes, to... exactly. When the woman's hanging there, I'm sure that's... that's... Well, obviously, when you're thinking about a death, morality really is at the heart of your concerns. Yeah. Really prominent on her mind. I mean, obviously, for regicides, there's the drawing and quartering. And that is very, very rare. It does not happen very often. But it's a gruesome punishment where somebody's eviscerated before they die. And then it's death by torture. It's a prolonged torture. And I think that that's covered all the executions. But even some of these that you've mentioned involve some aspect of torture because there's the pinching with hot irons on the way to something like the wheel, isn't there? Yeah. They're only allowed to do it, I think, at most three times because more times than that will be fatal. And again, this is a choreographed spectacle, so you don't want the person to die before they get out there and can be executed with the wheel. They often bring in doctors to heal people in prison because they don't want them to die before the execution. And one of the doctors comes in and actually says to Franz Schmidt, 
it's a terrible thing for me to heal up somebody just so that Meister Franz can execute him in a week. But that's because they want to preserve the spectacle. They want people to see this public execution that is so important to their authority. And so what you're talking about also is a very prescribed routine. If you're only allowed to do this three times and that, there's not much flexibility or initiative, therefore, for the executioner. But Franz Smith does show it in terms of writing and saying, can we behead women rather than drowning them? Right. He has to get approval from the city council. In Nuremberg, that's the top authority. And sometimes they will specify, give this person two nips on the way. Or he'll say, can I garret this person? Can I strangle this person before burning? And they'll say, yes, but do it secretly so that the crowd can't see because we want to preserve the horror of it. So they try to micromanage it, is what we would say. And the executioner's only flexibility is to mess up, which sometimes they do. You know, sometimes they need more than one swing of the sword to behead somebody. I mean, I calculated for him, he had an incredible success rate in terms of chopping off people's head with one blow. But sometimes it happens. Yeah, there's lots of them where you've got someone like Margaret Poole who's being chased around the block by her executioner. And that ruins everything, you know, because it's supposed to be very dignified and so on. And also people who are surly, people being executed who, you know, spit on the ground. And there's this one guy who you're supposed to be blessing people as you walk up and say, please forgive me. And this guy's cursing people and he walks right up to the execution block and he turns around and urinates in front of the crowd. I mean, this is a bad death, and this makes the officials look bad. And so the job of somebody like Franz Schmidt is to try to minimize this, because a bad execution is almost worse than no execution at all, because it sends the wrong message. So how did someone like Franz Schmidt deal with this? How did he cope with administering this violence on a near-daily basis? Yeah, that's the million-dollar question. I don't know. Because his journal is not what we would call a diary. It's not, oh, I felt really bad today after having to torture this person for two hours. You know, he doesn't, dear diary, I'm having doubts about my vocation. You know, he doesn't do any of that. I tried to get at him through that and through the other document. And I think several things work for him. One is, he says it's a terrible job. He said he didn't want to do it. This is in the petition for restitution of honor. But he says he felt like he was helping to keep the public order. He's a law enforcement official. It's the same thing you could ask that of a vice cop. How do you deal with this? How do you deal with all this awfulness? I think also for him, he compensated that he spent so much of his time healing people. And if he healed as many people as he said he did, he spent way more time on that than he did torturing and executing. So I think there's that. And then I also think in his case... This is something that was always prominent in his mind, that from the time he was born, this was a grudge that the family had. You know, we were unjustly put in this situation, and we have to get ourselves out of this. And so his father clearly did play a role in maneuvering to get his son into this prime position in Nuremberg. Whether the plan all along was to get their honor restored, I can't say with certainty, but I think it was always on his mind. You know, he was always trying to be respectable. One example is the not drinking. So this is extraordinary because everybody in the 16th century drank. John Calvin drank. Everybody drank alcohol. And this is his way of making a public statement and refuting this whole negative stereotype of drunken executioners. So I think he was always 
what some historians call self-fashioning. I mean, I think we all self-fashion. But he was trying to project this image of propriety, and that was one of the compensations he had. But how he dealt with all these tortures and executions, I don't really know. In the book, I wrote about how later in life, there's some justifying. Oh, this person had lots of chances, and they blew it. I think that helps him. I also think the idea that when people repent, that he's sort of almost as a kind of priest, that he's helping them repent and get saved. Here are people who've done these terrible things, but now we're making it better. We're letting them repent and pay the price and maybe get reconciled. So I don't know which of those factors was the most important, but I think all of them were in there to some degree. And he probably had to rehearse in his mind for some of these people who maybe seemed nice, the awful things that they had done. Yeah, and we don't know about his relationship with these people, how he dealt with people on a personal basis. He had to deal with a lot of different types of people. He had to deal with people who were arrested and sometimes tortured, executed. He had to deal with low-level law enforcement who were notoriously corrupt and lower parts of society. He had to deal with highly placed people, you know, physicians and lawyers and city councilors. So I think he obviously had some sort of aptitude for dealing with people. I think that's safe to say. But there are so many questions, like what you ask is, what did he think about this or what did he feel? And I can only speculate. I mean, one of the questions I have is, what was his sense of humor like? Was he a very serious person? Was he a humorous person? You know, once I was giving a lecture and somebody said, do you like Franz Schmidt? And I said, well, I don't feel like I know him well enough to comment on that because we only get parts of him from these documents. I don't know him. It's hard to know anybody, let alone somebody where you only have these little tidbits. So I can't say whether I'd like him or not. I can say that there are parts of his life that I sympathize with. I sympathize with his attempts to make the best of the bad hand that he's been dealt. But that's not to say I think I could have tortured and executed people for 45 years. <laughs> I don't think I could. It seems to me that there's quite a striving in the petition, obviously, but even perhaps in the existence of the journal itself, that there's something about trying to be accountable, be a man of moral probity, be above suspicion in keeping this account of everything he's done. And it's all towards this end of trying to win back the family honour. Yeah, I think so. I think he's a very deliberate person. Whether he's deliberate every day, you know, who is? But I think that this is always somewhere there in the picture and incredibly determined because we're talking about the restitution of honor petition is not until he's in his late 60s. So this is a long-term project. Now, part of his job, you've mentioned, was to be a professional interrogator. What did that involve? What were the approved options, as it were, when it came to torture? In Nuremberg, at least, this was pretty much micromanaged by the city council. You have to get permission to administer torture, and then they tell you which forms, and sometimes they tell you for how long... The idea of torture, this is another product of the gap between 16th century aspirations and reality, is they found it hard to construct a case of proof because they didn't have a lot of proof. So unless you have an eyewitness, which in most cases you don't, you need the standard for conviction will be a confession. And that's where torture comes in. But they didn't torture you know, everybody, and they didn't just do it. There was a legal process. 
I mean, I'm not saying that justifies it, but in their mind it did. In their mind, they were doing it legally. And it would go to the city council and sometimes their jurists, their legal consultants, and they would say, are there enough indications to justify torture? Several witnesses, the person has a bad reputation, different things. And if they decide yes, then they say, okay, you can do this kind of torture. But usually, a lot of times people would start talking just if the executioner brought them into the room and showed them all the instruments. I mean, I know I would. And they just say, and here's what this does, and this is what this does. And if you see the place in Nuremberg, I mean, it's terrifying. There are two little rooms, and there's one where they hung all the instruments, and there's the other where they interrogated people. It's in the basement. It's a dungeon in the city hall. And if you're brought into this dark room and he says, okay, this is what we do here and this is what this does, most people talk at that point. And the ones who don't tend to be the hardened criminals, the professional, the highwaymen. And then they have different types of torture that they will administer. And what they do is after the torture, then they put the question again. So the most common type of torture in Franz Schmidt's day was the strapado. And this is where the person's arms are put behind their back and they're pulled up above their head on a pulley and they hang there and then sometimes they put different weights on their feet to pull down more obviously you dislocate the shoulders and it's very painful there are other forms too but things about torture is number one they're supposed to take the testimony after the torture not during it and number two the person is then asked at least a day or two after the torture to confirm their statement and this gives the authorities a sense of, oh, we're doing this by the book, this is very fair. But of course, the implied thing is if you say no, they're going to take you back to the torture chamber and do it again, like with witches. I mean, it's torture, but they have a veneer over it to make it all seem legitimate and fair and deliberate and rationalized. And so his part is generally to oversee it. There's usually an assistant of the executioner who does a lot of the touching and you know, that's got to be pretty grueling because I estimated he probably did these kind of sessions at least twice or three times a week. That's pretty hard on the psyche to go down to the dungeon and do this a couple times a week. And he does not talk about it in the journal. I don't think we can argue from silence. We can't say, oh, he's very ashamed of it or he pretends it doesn't happen. All we can say is he doesn't talk about it, which again is understandable. But I think it's also because the point of the journal, as I said, is not to spill his feelings, you know, to process his emotions. The point of the journal is to show his employers, look at all the people I executed for you. That's the ultimate goal. So tortures don't really come into that. So the point being that once you've been arrested for something, if you are operating in this system, once you've been arrested and taken to be questioned, it doesn't really matter if you're innocent, because in the end, you're going to be found guilty. Are there any exceptions to that? Oh, yeah. You know, there are people for witchcraft who get off. It's likely you're going to be convicted. But the problem is, even if you're tortured and you're released, there's a huge stigma because people assume you're guilty and you got away with it. So you're free, but you're still ostracized and it's hard to do anything. But it's not a certain thing. Plus, not everybody who's tortured is executed. Sometimes there are other punishments. I mean, the one big punishment in the 16th century that they like to rely on the way we do prison, is banishment. Because they don't think it's harsh enough to execute somebody, but they want to get rid of the problem. So they basically just kick them out of the territory. The problem, of course, is people keep coming back. It doesn't work. And the only time it really works is if you have a foreign colony, which Germans don't, 
and you send them off to the Americas, then they're not coming back. But that's their only other option. So they banish people a lot of times before they actually execute. So many thieves who are hanged have been banished several times. And then the authorities say, well, they had lots of chances and they kept stealing. So then they jump to execution. They don't have what we would say is the middle step of prison. It's either banishment or execution. You've kept telling me that we can't get at his feelings. So maybe I'm pushing on something that (laughs) that you can't answer. But is there anything in the journal that we can learn about his attitude towards the severity of the crimes of the people he's executing? What I tried to get at is which things seem to upset him more than others by the way he wrote about them. And so, for instance, crimes against children or old people clearly produce some kind of visceral reaction. And that's something I think most of us would share. And so I think I was trying to get away from the idea that people in the 16th century were emotionally different or cold compared to us, that they didn't care about things. Because I actually think that's one of the areas of continuity. You know, emotionally, I don't think we're that different. He's upset by treatment of a dead body. He wrote several times when somebody was ambushed in the woods, and it really bothered him that they left the body there unburied for animals to get at. And that's something that today we think, oh, that's terrible that they were murdered. But that tells you something, you know, the the treatment of the dead body, which also in turn helps you understand how terrible it was to leave people hanging because they had this reverence for the dead body. That's why people pled, please, please give me beheading and let me be buried. Don't leave me hanging out on the gallows for the animals. I think he was upset by deception, by what we would call con men, con women, liars, frauds, embezzlers. I think image was very important to him and that you should be true to your word. And so people who weren't, I think that upset him at a deeper level. And especially people who came into the world in privilege, who had noble birth or they had lots of property, all the advantages he didn't. And then they proceeded to cheat people and lie. and So I think that bothered him quite a bit. For him, being an honest, pious person was so central to his identity. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Joel Harrington. It has been wonderful to host you on Not Just the Tudors. It's been a real pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, please recommend this podcast to your friends and family and do share it on social media. And also please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. Thank you. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.